I'm your host, Krista Lusage, and welcome to Just Be, Matters of Justice and Biblical Equality, where we inspire and equip listeners to be used of God in accordance with their gifts to serve others for the glory of God. Last episode, we carefully considered all of the implications on the function and roles of men and women presented to us in Genesis 1 and 2. These first two chapters of the Bible are great to study together as they both represent the biblical creation accounts and offer great insight to the dignity and responsibility of humanity. However, as you read through chapters 1 through 3, it appears that there's actually a greater narrative flow that begins with the second creation account in chapter 2 and continues until the end of chapter 3. It's like a two-act play written with a scrupulous economy of words. Chapter 2 provides the rising action of the creation of the garden and of the man and woman with a climax of unity and even unashamed nakedness of the man and woman in their relationship with each other and with God. It's in the opening of chapter 3, however, where the serpent provides the turning point of this so far glorious creation account. In a matter of moments, the woman sins, the man sins, and God tells the serpent, woman, and man about the consequences of their actions. The falling action concludes with the lovely Garden of Eden now being closed off to human blessing and enjoyment. While much has been written on Genesis 3 and gender roles, I believe Genesis 3 offers so much more for us. Along with refuting patriarchal interpretations, today I'll be making use of my background in language and literature as we analyze the passage for literary features as cues about the author's intentionality. But before we dive in, you may want to go back and listen to our last episode on the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. In that episode, we explored God's original design for humanity. The text is clear that man and woman are to live in mutually beneficial harmony and equal partnership with each other. There is no inherent hierarchy of the man over the woman, not by him being created first, not in their being made in the image of God, and not by man's need of woman. There is only a deep need for both male and female counterparts to work together as they exercise fruitfulness and dominion over the earth. Traditional Christians assert that God's original creation design included an aspect of patriarchal headship, they call it, where the man has the authority and responsibility because, well, that's how God made it. It's a cyclical argument, and it is an idea that is absent in Genesis 1 and 2. The text does not clearly represent masculinity this way. This view is a tangled web of reasoning steeped in a long tradition of patriarchal cultural expectations that we will see begin to unravel with a conscientious and careful reading of Scripture. The claims against women made about Genesis 3 hinge on a patriarchal understanding of the first two chapters. This is why you might want to make sure that you listen to our previous episode on Genesis 1 and 2. For review, folks in this camp couch their patriarchal leanings in the term complementarity because they feel that this model complements the innate responsibility for men to lead and for women to follow. 
They believe that everyone wins when Christ-like men, to the exclusion of Christ-like women, hold positions of ultimate authority, leadership, and responsibility. I do not feel like this is a win-win or complementary situation for men or women, and I do not believe that the message of the Bible supports this claim. Therefore, it is difficult for me to use the innocuous term of complementarity in the way that they wish to define it. This is why you'll be hearing me use the phrase patriarchal complementarian or hierarchy throughout this discourse. Perhaps you may be thinking, why does it even matter what the pre-fall state of existence was between the man and woman? I mean, aren't we living in a fallen world? Why is this pre-fall nature of the relationship between man and woman even relevant? Well, the easiest answer is that if the ideal represented in the Garden of Eden is full partnership and equality, then no matter what sin may enter into the equation, equality and partnership should be the ideal intended by God that we continue to strive for. However, if one can be convinced that God created the man first in sequential order of his creation, man then woman, and first also in relational status, man presiding over woman, then one can say that even in a perfect world, women are not to share an equal partnership with men. While this is traditionally known as the story of Adam and Eve, I think it's interesting that throughout the narrative, the characters don't specifically get their names until later on at the end in chapter 3, verse 20 for Eve and verse 21 for Adam. Up until this point in time, Adam is really lowercase Adam, which could mean earthling, man of the ground. This relates to his substance of origin as the earth or Adamah, as it's pronounced in Hebrew. And Eve is called woman, which relates to her substance of origin since she was created out of man, which is Ish, and the woman is Isha in Hebrew. While we may be eager to assign specific names to the biblical characters so that it comes in line with our own storytelling expectations, the text itself does not do this. And so I don't think we should either. Some translations jump to calling the man Adam. After all, they're the same words in Hebrew. But until the text designates proper noun with an uppercase A, Adam, we'll stick with calling him the man out of integrity for the original text. There may, in fact, be a special reason that it was written this way, and we'll talk more about that later on. So, firstly, some patriarchal complementarians believe that Genesis 3 teaches, ultimately, that Eve sinned first, and this proves that she is more prone to deception. This exemplifies her inherent need for male leadership, since it is only when Eve steps out on her own and makes her own decision apart from the guidance of her husband that she eats the forbidden fruit. This is our first claim that we'll discuss Certainly, the woman is deceived, but the text also points out that Adam was with her and ate the forbidden fruit as well. As many times as you might like to read over this chapter, you won't find this patriarchal complementary view explicitly or implicitly taught in the narrative. You'd have to go to other sources in the New Testament to find any sort of basis for the claims like that to be made out of Genesis 3. 
For that reason, we won't make our study on Genesis 3 a study that ties in and relates to specific New Testament texts that reference the sin of Adam and Eve. Let's give Genesis 3 our best attention so that when we see references to it in Scripture later on, which we will do, we'll have the best chances of coming away with the true intent of both texts. In this way, we can conclude that Genesis 3 does not present the woman as being more prone to deception or that it was her lack of so-called male headship that led her to sin. Either way, they both sin. So what do I mean? Well, we see in chapter 3, verse 3, that Eve is quoting God, or she thinks she's quoting God, but clearly has a distorted view of the original command that God gave to the man in chapter 2, verse 17. Instead of properly quoting God as saying, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she inserts the additional command, not to touch the fruit. She tells the sermon that God said, you may not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, which is not in the original command. It's quite possible to conjecture that this is a crucial revelation in the man and woman's perhaps inclination to strive toward holiness, not by following God alone, but by creating and following a law of his own making. Perhaps it is this additional man-made legalism to not touch the tree that adds confusion to the moment that the serpent casts doubt on the truth, goodness, and grace of God. Instead of clinging to the word of God, Eve's confused legalism falters as she reasons that perhaps God is holding out on her. And verse 6 and 17 tell us that her husband, who was standing by, listened to his wife in that moment instead of listening to what God said. Adam's mistake is not simply that he listens to his wife, but that he listens to her suggestion over and above what God had specifically told him not to do. What a lesson is taught in these few verses. Here are a few takeaways so far. Through the example of the woman, we see how an unclear, misguided, or man-made legalistic ethic can lead one into confusion and deception and sin. Through the example of the man, we see the need to listen to the voice of God over and above the voice of our companions. We might have missed these important points in our study of the scripture if we were overly concerned with reading it as a text about gender roles. This highlights the importance for reading each text for its own merit instead of getting it caught up in a gender role debate. As the story goes, the man and woman now feel naked and ashamed. They make loincloths out of fig leaves and hide from God. It seems to me that in their shame, they retreat from one another as presented in their coverings, which now conceal the very sexuality that once united them. This foreshadows the beginning of the breakdown in their once perfect relationship. Not only do they separate in this way from each other, but they also hide from God. Right away, the text shows how sin affects not only their ability to fully and freely relate to one another, but also affects their ability to fully and freely relate to God.
The second area of patriarchal complementarian implications of Genesis 3 rest in the wording of God's judgment on the woman in chapter 3, verse 16. All sorts of conclusions are made with regard to the various ways that this verse is translated and interpreted. If you don't believe me, just Google it and see for yourself. While most translations have the phrase that reads, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, a recent translation in the English Standard Version or ESV reads, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The former translation describes the wife's natural desire to be with or for her husband, and yet a power struggle will still ensue, as often is the case, due to our sinful ways. However, the ESV's use of the word contrary could have the connotation that wives are by nature now antagonistic toward their husbands and even need, possibly, to be kept in check or ruled by their husbands. Yikes. Whereas will in the first translation describes the general reality of a male-dominated society, shall sends the message that this is as it should be. I'm not saying this is the interpretation that the ESV intends for us to make. However, the ESV has come up under much scrutiny for making this change in the wording. You may also be curious to know that the ESV has strong roots in the very patriarchal complementarian ideas that we are challenging in this podcast. It could even be argued that the ESV itself was actually created in part as an attempt to thwart the progressive rise of women's equal rights in the church along with society at large. I'll try to quickly tell you about the bias of the ESV today, but we could easily make a whole episode about it. I'll just give you one name to follow. It's Wayne Grudem. He is a theologian that organized a meeting of prominent evangelical theologians in the 1980s to form what they call the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood with the stated purpose to help the church combat the rise of feminism. After crafting their statement of beliefs, the council placed a full-page center spread ad in a 1988 issue of the popular magazine Christianity Today. The ad included their statement of beliefs called the Danvers Statement that placed limitations on women while exalting the leadership of men. It was hoped that this statement would be adopted and endorsed by other church and religious organizations. After that, Wayne Grudem contributed to and edited the book on patriarchal complementarianism entitled Recover Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a response to evangelical feminism, published in 1991 by Crossway Press. Many pastors still turn to this book for guidance on gender-related hermeneutics. In the following decade, Wayne Grudem and his selected group of male colleagues collaborated with Crossway Press again to release a new translation of the Bible in 2001 called the ESV. Wayne Grudem was the general editor of the ESV Study Bible. This version intentionally moved away from the gender-inclusive language of the NIV and happens to be the version where our hotly contested contrary wife is thus placed in our discussion today of Genesis 3 verse 16. 
This isn't to say that the ESV may not be a helpful translation to use at times, although you will find commentary in the study notes on the submissive role women are supposed to have. But I'm just pointing it out because you may think a study Bible is one thing and a book on gender roles is another, coming from two distinct times and places and people. But the reality is that both the ESV and the book on patriarchal complementarianism that so affected our churches today derive from the same general editor who already has a clear doctrinal leaning or bias when it comes to gender roles. Perhaps even someday he'll stumble upon this podcast and begin to change his position in light of the biblical teachings that are presented here. At any rate, let's consider Genesis 3.16 as it relates to this question on gender roles. This is what God tells the woman in poetic line and verse that combine two couplets for you poetry people out there. It says in the NIV, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The ESV says it this way. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Is God saying that this is how it should be from now on? Or is he saying this is characteristic of how it will be from now on since sin is in the world? Well, let me ask, is it spiritually wrong to get an epidural or pain medications while in labor? Is it spiritually wrong to make farming less physically demanding? For most, this is an easy answer. No. Well then, is it spiritually wrong to work toward creating a marriage relationship that is characterized by mutuality and partnership as enjoyed in the sinless world of Genesis 2? Is there anything wrong with mutual submission? Is God prescribing things as they should be or describing things as they will be as a result of sin? Both sides of this debate acknowledge that chapter 3 presents new struggles for humanity as a result of sin. So, whether you read the ESV or more gender-inclusive versions like the NIV, it is clear that the results of sin are tragic, resulting in the breakdown of relationships between the serpent and the offspring of the woman, the woman and her husband, and the man and his new environment. If you maintain that Genesis 2 describes an equal relationship where man and woman work together in harmonious unity and equal partnership in marriage, then it is easy to see all of 316 as descriptive outcomes of a fallen world. As such, we can and should work toward diminishing the power and prevalence of sin in our lives. Whereas pain and childbirth would be considered a health issue to be treated and alleviated, for the complementarian male rule couched in more innocuous terms like male headship or complementarity is actually elevated and promoted. Arguing that God establishes husband rule as the norm in a perfect setting in Genesis 2, and then reasoning that husband rule after the fall is still a positive and not a negative consequence of sin, is a trickier theological assumption to maintain. And it's difficult to find reasons to read the text this way. In order to make this assumption, folks need to argue about distinctions in the type of rule the husband is supposedly granted in chapter 2 versus the type 
type of rule assumed in chapter three, where the former is benevolent and the latter is tainted with sin. However, this just isn't in the text. There's actually only two kinds of rule in these chapters, and here they are. In chapter one, God blesses male and female and invites them both, both to participate in dominion over the earth's ecological systems in chapter one, verse 28. The other type of rule is where God describes male rule as a result of sin in 3.16. God anticipates that the physical strength endowed to the man will now often be used in self-promoting ways. When we allow ourselves the opportunity to read the scripture as it was written without imposing our own previously existing biases, we free up our ears, hearts, and minds to fully explore what the text is saying. In that spirit, let's stand back and observe some literary features of chapter 3. There are three distinct poems in verses 14 through 19. And we know that they're poems because poetry is designated with the intentionality of when each line ends. Extra space at the end of a line indicates that what you are reading is not to be read as straight prose, but as poetry. As poetry, we must look at the features of the poem to help us understand its purpose. First, we'll notice a pattern of curse and or judgment followed by prophecy. In the first poem, a curse and prophecy is geared toward the serpent. In the second poem, a curse and judgment is geared toward the woman. In the third poem is a curse toward the ground and a judgment followed by prophecy geared toward the man. Next, for our purposes, we'll look at each prophecy the man and woman receive. Here's what stands out to me. There's irony in the prophecy handed to the man. The man, still Adam, lowercase a, will now struggle to make a living from the once bountiful ground, Adama, from which he was created. In the same way, the woman, Isha, will now struggle in her relationship to that from which she was created, Ish, or the man. This is a wordplay that I doubt was lost on the original Hebrew audience. Adam, Adama, and Isha, Ish. Adam will have a power struggle with the Adama, the ground from which he was made, and the Isha, woman, will have a power struggle with the Ish from which she was made. What's interesting to me is that this observation reveals that both the man and woman receive consequences that are a direct parallel to each other. Both will have a struggle with that from which they were made. In this way, we can argue that the poems reveal that in addition to the loss of harmony between man and his environment and husband and wife, mankind will also have inner struggles within himself or herself. In any case, parallels in the poems reveal a pattern of judgment and prophecy. The prophetic outcomes of sin stand in opposition to the way that God created and intended the world to be. While women in general will feel the weight of oppression in a fallen world, we are offered a glimmer of hope. Though childbearing will be painful, it will also bring a prophetic sense of justice upon the serpent. The woman is finally designated as Eve, which is a name that resembles the Hebrew word for life giver. This gives her a personhood of hope and promise. So let me ask, does the detail of the man naming Eve provide sufficient evidence that he is her authority? I'm not sure. It doesn't appear to be the case. All I can see is that Adam just got some chilling news about returning to the ground, which is what his name represents. He's basically told, dust to dust. 
But the naming of Eve seems to celebrate her life-giving nature, as the name itself sounds and looks like the Hebrew words for life-giver or living. I think it's a huge stretch to argue that this naming situation gives the man a position of authority over the woman. However, either way, Eve's naming happens after the fallout with sin and thus cannot be connected to God's pre-fall idealistic standards for the unity of the first husband and wife. In conclusion, Genesis 3 does not in any way teach that the woman is more prone to deception and therefore needs male headship in her life, as some would say. While the result of sin brings all kinds of relational breakdowns, It does not mean that husbands are to continue to have rule over their wives in perpetuity. Eve's naming provides a moment of celebration of Eve's life-giving future and is not presented as a power play by the man. Genesis 2 makes clear God's intention for husband and wife counterparts to work as equally reciprocal partners. It does not imply that one is to be the head while the other is to be the tail. This is further emphasized in the narrative of the fall, where it is deception, confusion about God's law, and a consideration that God was withholding something good from them that causes the man and woman to sin. The stark consequences of sin are pain, relational breakdowns, and death. And yet, there lies the setting for the rest of God's redemptive plan for the world to unfold. It is a bit haunting to me that along with the redemptive message of the gospel, that this approach to viewing male-female relationships, which empowers men to domineer and conditions women to accept being dominated, continues to go forth in a world often already fraught with hostility toward women. Men and women both experience hostility for various social reasons, but it is women who face the additional hostility that comes at the cost of simply being female. Worldwide, a woman faces a much higher chance of suffering due to limited educational opportunities, physical domination, forced slavery, sex trafficking, domestic abuse, unemployment, unfair wages, and limited voting rights, as documented by the Millennium Project. The gospel is a message of freedom and justice. Jesus consistently elevated women and encouraged them to take action and lead. The Apostle Paul likewise inverts the idea of male headship in his letters to the church. Our fallen world needs men and women to stand and lead together to spread the gospel and fight for justice. So where do we go from here? My preference would be to use the next several episodes to highlight women of the Bible who used their faith, gifts, talents, and wisdom to help step in to crucial leadership roles that God placed them in. This approach would give us a better sense of the overarching themes of female empowerment through the broad scope of scripture. However, I also know that if you are tuned into this issue, it may be because you are are especially eager to hear more about the specific passages of the New Testament that have played into the patriarchal expectations of so many Christian communities. So, join us next time as we survey the origins of Christian traditions of so-called male headship. If you are enjoying these episodes, please share them with a friend. 
I would love to hear your feedback. It would only take a few seconds to give this podcast a starred review, and it would really help other people struggling with this issue to find this resource. You can also reach out on the Just Be Facebook page. Our closing verse today is Psalm 119, 27 through 32. Help me understand the meaning of your commandments, and I will meditate on your wonderful deeds. Keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. I have chosen to be faithful. I have determined to live by your regulations. I cling to your laws. Lord, don't let me be put to shame. I will pursue your commands for you expand my understanding. I hope you're enjoying the music. That's me playing my bass guitar. It's so important to me to have music as a part of this conversation. Peace.